Kind of use do I like Okay. We're gonna have to think about this. <laughs> Okay, so yesterday we had a really, I, I liked the class a lot and we got to really go into the whole Parsha. And so what I want to do today is to talk about some themes of the whole Parsha, because we don't have to go into the details of the Parsha because we did that yesterday. Um, I have two from Lubavitch Rebbe. I have one from Jonathan, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. I have one from Rabbi Adin Steinzeltz, Evan Yisrael, and I have some other ones that I picked up from other lesser known teachers. So I think it all works together. You'll let me know afterwards if it if it's if it's like cohesive or it's just kind of like a lot of interesting things. Before we start, I do want to say, and we'll come back to it at the end, this Shabbos is Shabbos Mavarchim. It's the week that we bless the month of Kislev. Rosh Chaydish is next week Friday. So this week is the week that we're sort of transitioning into Kislev, even though we're going to have a whole week, meaning it's not like Rosh Chodesh is at the end of next week, but Shabbos Mubarakim is this week. And there are a lot of people who have a custom to say to Hillim on Shabbos Mubarakim. So that's a, that's one thing. And we're going to talk about also that transition space um, at the end, at the end of the Parsha. So we're talking, we're, we're here, we are in Parsha's Chayisara. And yesterday we started talking about the, I guess, irony of Chayisar being called the life of Sarah, where everything in the Parsha seems to not uh, not follow every, everything. Everything just doesn't seem to follow the life of Sarah. And we mentioned how it was really more of her legacy, not her actual life. So we spoke about yesterday about how the first place in Eretz Yisrael is bought for Sarah, the burial for Sarah. Um, and one of the interesting things, which we didn't touch on yesterday, which I do want to mention, is one of the things that Sarah, where Sarah differs from Avraham is that Avraham is more universal and Sarah is much more particular. Sarah is Yitzchak, 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 Yitzchak. Like the, the genesis of the Jewish people, that's Sarah's focus. Um, where Avraham has many children, he has, other, he has other children, Sarah only has Yitzchak, right? So by the purchase of the Maris Pela for Sarah, we are taking a potentially universalist place because who is the first couple buried in the cave of Machpelah, which is the first set there. Adam and Chava. Adam and Chava, the ultimate universalist, right? The whole world comes from Adam and Chava. And we say, no, it's not about everybody. It's about Sarah. It's about Sarah and Avram and the Jewish people. And it's going to end up being a place specifically for the Jewish people. So that Eretz Yisrael is going to become, um, it's going to be the, the place for the Jewish people. Um, so that's so that's the first thing that we're going to see that's going to happen um, in her life, which is very, an interesting thing, which kind of we'll talk about more next week, is that um, just, uh, you know, next week we're going to start talking about Jacob and Esau, Jacob and Esau, and there was always the, the conflict of the, the birthright, who is the oldest, who is the oldest. And we're gonna find that as on a historical level, the children of Yitzchak and Yishmol are always going to be fighting about the land of Israel, who does it belong to? Whereas the children of Yaakov and Esau are always gonna be talking about who's, 
who's really in charge, whose vision is really in charge. But that's really for next week. Just a little bit of a, uh, not a spoiler, what's the what trailer? A little bit of a trailer for next week. So the first thing we have is that the first place in Eretz Yisrael is bought for Sarah. This is, this, is, um, this, is, this is one of the overviews from the Rebbe, from the Bible trailer. The next thing that happens is that Yitzchak, what's the bulk of the Parsha? Yitzchak gets married, right? We have the whole process of the Shidduch, of getting married, right? Why was, what did Sarah need Yitzchak for? To, to continue the vision, to continue this, this vision of Abraham, who's taking on that vision. And one of the things that we'll notice, because we talked about this a little bit yesterday, is that Abraham is going to live 40, approximately 40 years after Sarah passes away. And we don't hear so much more about Abraham. We hear about him having more children, whatever, but we don't really hear him as an active player anymore because the player is never single. It wasn't about Avraham. It was about Avraham and Sarah. And as soon as Yitzchak and Rivka come on the scene, they are the ones who are going to take over. So now Sarah's whole vision was, yes, that who is, who is the next link in the chain? Where is this going? So for Yitzchak to marry Rivka and to be comforted, it's not that he's comforted. Yes, he's comforted over the loss of his mother, but not just the loss of the, over his mother, but the question of direction. How is this going to happen? How is this going to move forward? that the answering of that question is comforting to Yitzchak. And so that's also one of Sarah's visions of Yitzchak, having Yitzchak, well, he shouldn't just want to have him as a little tiny baby and not like the point of a Yitzchak was that Yitzchak should grow up and he should get married and he should have children and they should continue this. However, in their, in their way, they're going to continue this, 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 um, this, whatever this is, experiment, lifestyle, adventure, all those kind of good words. Um, the next thing that we have is, who remembers from our overview last yesterday? Next thing we have is Avraham remarries. He marries this woman called Keturah. And uh, Rashi is of the opinion, not everybody's, but Rashi is of the opinion that Keturah is Hagar, is Hagar. Now, who was the first person that put Hagar and Avraham together? Sarah. Sarah, right? Sarah was the first person who saw the potential in Hagar to have children with Avraham. What happened then was that Hagar overstepped her, her whatever it should have been. And so Sarah's like, okay, that's not a good idea. But the fact that Hagar comes back in a place of understanding where her role is, and she is in fact then able to marry Avraham and have six more children and have nations come from Hagar, that was also part of Sarah's vision. And, all, and the last thing that we have in the parasha is Yishmael, uh, the death of Yishmael. We have the death of Abraham, then we have the death of Yishmael. And the death of Yishmael, we suppose, means that he died as a righteous person. Hagar kicks Yishmael, sorry, when Sarah kicked Hagar and Yishmael out, it wasn't because she had anything against them personally, but behave, like they, because of the behavior that Yishmael was exhibiting, he couldn't be here. But as soon as he comes into the, into the vision of Avraham, then Yishmael is welcoming. She's, she, did, she, wasn't, she wasn't afraid of him as another person. She was, she was very, very nervous about his influence on Yitzhak. 
So that has to be very, very clear about that, not continuing. But as soon as Yishmol says, wait a second, I'm going to, this is really where I want to be. He has, you know, many, many years where he gets to run and wild, be wild and do whatever he wants to do. And towards the end of his life, towards the end of Avraham's life, he actually comes back. And that's when one, one of the things we talk about that Avraham passes away, the Seva Tova in a good space. All the chicks are in the house. You know, Yishmol and Yitzchak bury him. And well, it actually says Yitzchak and Yishmol that, that Yishmol says that Yitzchak is, is, the, is the, first, the first heir of Avraham. And I'm the second one. And when he comes to that place, he's able to, that uh, he's welcomed, not only able to, but he's welcomed back in the family. It's not like, oh, we don't want him here. We only don't want him here as long as he's not going to be a good influence on the, on the bigger picture. So when you look at all of those ideas as that theme, that is in fact the life of Sarah. That is in fact the life of, of keeping, you know, Eretz Yisrael, Yitzchak, even Yishmol coming back in is what Sarah would want if he was coming back in as a righteous person that he was following this. Thing. So that was one kind of overview of the parts which I thought was very interesting. I'm going to get back to the a second uh, insight later on. I want to share a couple of other things uh, first. So so one of the things that um, that Rabbi, Rabbi uh, Adin Evan Yisrael, Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz, speaks about is the juxtaposition of Vayera and Chayasara, that we have two parshas right next to each other. Vayera is one of the busiest parshas you could possibly imagine, right? Avram had, we have the story of, of the visions with the angels, we have Sidom, we have war, we have all these kind of stuff going on in these other parshas, right? Some in Lech Lecha and also in Vayera. And then Chayasar seems to be like, like there's stuff happening, but it's like a little bit more mellow. It's kind of a little bit more of a mellow parsha. And one of the things that Rosh Steinsel points out is that you have a lot of the same players in Vayera and Chayasar. When Avraham goes to fight the four, the war with the four kings and the five kings, that was in Vayera, yeah. He goes to fight the war to, to free Lot. No, that was in Lechelcha. But I'm saying these last two parshas, who was with him? Rashi says that he took 318, the Pusik says he took 318 men with him. And Rashi says he didn't, he only took Eliezer and the name Eliezer is numerically equivalent to 318. So it was Avram and Eliezer against three kings and the four, the four kings and the five kings. And now we have Eliezer in our parsha. His chief warrior is now his chief negotiator for Shidduch for his son, right? He's have the same people. We have, you know, different people. You know, Avram is there, Avram is there. And one of the things that Ravadim talks about is how life is not stagnant. There are times in our life that it is busy and it is hectic, hectic, and it is active. And it's not just, oh, now Avraham is old, so therefore he's not so active. He was pretty... He was pretty, I mean, pretty old for most of these stories that we hear about. He was not super young for any of We only meet him when he's 75 years old. But one of the things that Ravadin talks about is not so much the age factor, but times in our life where it's like, go, 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 do this, and another thing, another thing, another thing. And then how do we deal with the quiet? How do we deal with the calm? And I think it's so instructive that we are now in the month of Cheshvan, which follows the month of Tishrei, which is exactly that same idea of like hectic, hectic, hectic Tishrei. Good hectic, I'm not saying bad. Hectic doesn't necessarily mean bad. Hectic just means 
busy and co- you know, complicated and things and stuff are going on and blah, 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 right? So we're coming from Tishrei. And now how do we deal with the month that's, there's no highs. It's just, it's just this, you know? How do we deal with this? And we have to look at Avraham and he says, Avraham at every single moment of his life said, what does Hashem want of me now? So that's what we were talking about yesterday. He's 140 years old. His wife has passed away and he's getting married and having more kids. Like what? Let it go. Leave it alone. No. What does Hashem want of me now? And that's always his question. If the question that is being asked of me is uh, uh, change countries, go down to Egypt, fight a war, do it this, do it that, or it's to just be Whatever it is, Avraham is saying, what does Hashem want of me? And for us to be able to live with that in our lives, we have, you know, we, we, we sometimes, I, I think of, I don't know if everybody has the same thing. So this is my, this is my thing. I don't know if it's anybody else's, you know, like sometimes it feels like you're a high junkie, you know, like, what's the next thing that we're going to do? What's the next thing that we're going to do? What's the next thing we're going to do? We're going to do like, you know, we're going to go from here to here. And then like, whoa, where's that place that we just sit and not just like you guys to sit on the couch and put our feet up, but I'm saying like on an emotional level, where do we just get to, how does my relationship with Hashem develop in this place when it isn't saying like, woo, 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 you know, like how do I, how do I do that? How do I dive it in this place of calm? How do I talk to Hashem in this place of not super high emotion, but how do I connect and, 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 for some people, that's the harder place. And for some people, that's the easier place. And the hectic is the, is the harder place. And really having Avraham's Parshish cover both of those attitudes, it's, it's telling us we have to be able to be versatile. We have to be able to move with whatever our Avedis Hashem looks like right now. What does my service of Hashem look like now, today, here? Okay, then I'm going to embrace it fully and not say, but but I wish it could have been that there is a time for that. There is a time for whichever way you're looking at it, whether we're saying right now, it's just go, 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 go. And you're like, I just need like four days to just sit and meditate and just like, like soak it all in. And you don't have that time. And then there's times where like, that's all you have. And you want a little bit of a high, whatever it is, we have to be able to say, Abishter, Hashem, what do you want from me now? What is, what, how do I, in this space, how do I serve you? How do I serve you to my fullest and, and, and to be there for whatever it is that you need of me? And that's a very, very, um, I think that's one of the things that we're, that Rav Adin is pushing us to take from Abraham, that he never rested and said, Sababa, I did enough. I could stop now. Things are fine. I could just, you know, retire and, and uh, you know, I'm not saying he's going to, you know, whatever he's going to do. He's going to learn. He's going to, I don't know what he's going to do. He never said that. He always said, what does Hashem want of me now? What could I be doing right now? That was one thing. That's from Rav Adin. Rav Adin Steinzelt, Evan Yisrael. Everybody always called him Rav Adin. I don't know why. Like, I'm sure people called him Rav Steinzelt. A lot of people did, but like my son's learned in his yeshiva and he was always Rav Adin. Really? I've heard Rav Steinzelt, but everybody's listening to this. Right. So... So that, yeah, I, I don't I don't mean it at all in a disrespectful uh, manner. So please don't take it as such. Um, 
this week was, uh, so those are, so far, like, I think then we have, um, then I, uh, a tire from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, whose yard site was this week, his first yard site was this week. So first of all, I think it's quite incredible that he actually prepared um, articles for the whole, this whole last year. There were new articles coming out that he had prepared and written to be published which is uh, quite a tribute to somebody who's a, a teacher and uh, an educated person for God, no matter what about in a bunch of his essays, in a bunch of his essays, Look at Abraham. You know, the, the Pasuk starts off and it says, uh, it talks about that he, he, um, in Pasuk, Perakov Gimel, Pasuk Gimel, it says that Ayakam Abraham me alpne meso, he stands up from in front of his, his, his death, his dead person, his dead. And then he starts negotiating the, the plot for, for, for the, for the, for the, oh, who's my English? He starts negotiating. For a burial plot for Sarah. And Rabbi Sachs says, isn't this incredible? Avram has re received multiple promises from Hashem for Eretz Yisrael, for children. His wife, his helpmate, his soulmate passes away. He doesn't have a piece of land to bury her. He doesn't have, he has a son who's older and not married. Where are my children? Where is my land? Where is everything? And do, do we hear Avram saying, uh, God, like, bring it on. Show me, you know, what's with all the promises? No. What, 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 what Rabbi Sachs says, what does Avram do? So he gets up and he continues and he says, wait a second, I have promises from Hashem, but what is my part in making sure that those promises come true? What is my part in making that dream, so to speak, a reality? And he says, it's not, you're not going to just, he doesn't sit back and say, what? I can't believe it. I, I have to, you know, I have to buy a plot. I was promised all of this land and I have to go pay top dollar for this land. In fact, according to one of the, the Maparshim Rabbi Niona, the burial, buying a plot for Sarah is considered, according to how he counts the test, it's Avram's final test, not the Akedah. So there is a place according to Rabbi Yona, that as, as, as intense a test as Akedah Yitzchak was, having to negotiate the, per, the purchase of Mars and Machpela for Avram was an even greater test. Instead of saying, Hashem, you promised this to me. I'm supposed to get all of this. He doesn't. And, and having to deal with somebody who's so two-faced and so dishonest and so whatever, all of that stuff, he doesn't, and he he really he he rises to the occasion, and he really, you know, kind of pulls it together. And so this, according to at least one commentary, that this is considered a test for him. But what Rabbi Sachs' point that he was making was, look what Abraham says. He's like, I have all these promises from Hashem. None of them, none of them, I have come true yet. What do I need to do? What do I need to do? I need to buy a burial plot for Sarah. Wait, I have a son who isn't married. He's supposed to be the next generation. Let's get him a wife. He can't be the next generation on his own. He needs a wife. Who's going to be his partner in this, in this whole endeavor? And so he gets up and he 
you know, he gets up and he he does. And he says, how do I make these promises come true? And then they're going to come true when I create the vessel for them to, for the, for the blessings to pour in. And that's really like one of the great, great things of Avraham is that he, he doesn't just sit back and say, poor me, poor me. He says, how do I make this happen? How do I make this a reality? And one of the things that Robert Sachs talked about in at least one of his essays, I saw it in one, even more than one, because there's certain things that he repeats, you know, over and over is, you know, you, you look at the generation of survivors of the Holocaust. They could have said, I'm done. But by and large, the generation picked up and said, we are going to rebuild. We're going to have families, we're going to have businesses, we're going to make, you know, we're going to, for the people who are involved in Torah, they built Torah institutions that, you know, like I look in my, my husband's family, cause they have, they, they're like more, I come from like the Russian sides. They had a war, the Hungarians had a, had a Holocaust. I don't know if that makes any sense, but um, every single one of his grandparents, his parents, sorry, his parents on one side, his grandparents on the other side, cause the one side doesn't have grandparents. But the first thing they do is they got involved in burial society. They got involved with making sure that we rebuild Jewish institutions and we rebuild, you know, a place for, for the Jewish people. And the amount of strength that that takes, Rabbi Sachs is correlating with Avram's strength to have to be able to, after he buries his wife, be able to stand up and start again, which is essentially what he does. He, he, buried, he negotiates a place for her to be buried. He finds a wife for Yitzchak. He, re, he remarries, he has more children. He's like, we are going to continue with this endeavor. And how powerful a message is that for us? You know, we all have times in our lives, you know, they might not be as dramatic. They may be and they may not be, but there, we all have times in our life where we say, done, 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 you know? So we, we have to give ourselves a little bit of space to say, you know, whatever, however it is that we do that done, done, done. If we do it on the couch with, you know, a little bit, and then we have to pick ourselves up and we need to move forward. Whatever, whatever's going on, the answer is not going to be to just say in despair and to wallow in what didn't happen. But our answer is always going to be to step forward and what are the steps and what are the concrete things that I need to do in order to make this happen? How do I move forward with my life? How do I move forward with whatever it is? So, so that is, is, I think, a super, super empowering, should we choose to accept it, message from this Parsha of, of he doesn't just roll up into a ball and say, my life is over. He stands up. Uh, okay, I want to say I want to do some some random ones, some different ones that I heard from from other sources first, and then we're going to come back to then there's one more that I think is such a, an insight of the Rebbe that is so 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 powerful. But I want to actually finish with that one. So you see, yesterday I put my markers into my place because I knew I was never going to find the pages on the spot. It's too stressful for me. Um, so in the story of Eliezer. Uh, going to find a wife for Yitzchak. So there are two interesting things that we, we want to note, okay? Number one is that we know that when he goes, when he travels, if you have, if you have, if you have a Chumash, it's, it's Kedai, it's worth it to open up to chapter 24, verse 12, because it's going to be something cool for you to see, 
Okay. So he's going and we know that he stops at the well. He, he like, he, he causes the camels to kneel. I don't know how you say that in one word in English. And he was vayavrech. He caused them to kneel and he prays. Okay. So if you're going to look at chapter 24, verse 12, you're going to see something. First word, vayomer, on top of the men. Does anybody have a chumash? And have 24, 12. You might not have it in your chumash. Not chumash over there. Sorry. No, 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 not, no, it's fine, it's Rashi. Look at the Pasuk. Verse 12, you'd bet. What do you see on top of one of the letters? On top of the first in the Vayomer? What, Vayomer? A zigzag. You see that zigzag? You see that zigzag? Yeah. Okay, what's it called? It's called the Shalshelet. Okay, that, that actual, uh, that, that's a, the musical note. That's a truck. That's cancellation. For, for how we read the Torah, six times in the entire Chumash. We have a Shalshelet six times in the entire Chumash. What does that look like? That zigzag, what does it look like? Because that's actually what it is. It, Adina, if you were to look at that shape, what does that shape say to you? Hmm? Okay, that's one. But the actual shape. What is it? What is a zigzag? It goes here. A zigzag goes. It goes this and the, right. The the actual trup goes back and forth three times. Right. That trup called the shalshelet is used in the Torah when there are moments of indecision. Should I do this? 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 Right. Uh, we start. Can you sing it for us? Because I I can't. I've never, I've never seen it because I never read. And you see, there's a, it's very, it's very rare. I, I shall it. It's literally. I thought it was because, right there, which is just three. No, it was, uh, it's, it's, on, yeah. it's like that, but this is actually. This is it goes, it's like an extra level. And whenever you see a shalshelet in the Torah, well, you're not going to see it in the Torah because it actually isn't in the Torah, but in Chumash, it's going to be a sign that says, Somebody here is at a crossroads of a very big decision. And Eliezer is here. And what is he doing here? He's going to daven to Hashem about finding a wife for Yitzchak, right? This is going to be the sign when I find a wife. He is not aware of his indecision. The Torah is telling us there is an indecision. And we're going to see, if you take a look in chapter 24, verse 39, when he is retelling the story of what's going on, right? What does he say? Sir, you look like you know where we're going with this one. Yeah. What does it have there in verse 39? 39. In verse 39. Yeah, sorry. Um, I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not come back. Perhaps you will not want to come with me. Now look in the Hebrew. And in the Hebrew, it says Ulai. And Rashi says, wait a second, it's misspelled. Ulai is supposed to have a vav. It's supposed to say, now we know you could change the vowels, but there is the first time the story happens, it's supposed to have a vav in there. It's supposed to be Ulai, not as a not as a letter, but as a vowel. And Rashi's like, why is there a vav missing here? Because we know that the Torah has no punctuation. And if you didn't have any punctuation on this, you could read this word as Eli to me. 
Because Eliezer's indecision in his davening is that someplace in the recesses of his mind, he says, when he doesn't even realize until he retells the story, when he has this conversation with Avram the first time, this does not come up at all. He does not, the ulai over there, when he says to Avram over there, it has a love. You know, what if she doesn't want to come with me? So then Avram's like, you're off the hook. You're all, you know, you don't have to do anything about it. Okay. Here, when he's retelling the story, he's like, oh, wait a second. I have a bias. And Rashi brings here that Eliezer had a daughter and he subconsciously was like, if a family member doesn't work out, maybe he could, maybe Yitzhak could marry my daughter. Eliezer is like Avram's top person. He's, he's, he, 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 the, the, the Chazal tells, he drew from Avram's teachings and he, he watered other people. That doesn't make sense in English, but it's like a poetic way of saying he shared Avram's teachings. He was like, the number one Talmud, and he has a daughter. And when he's davening for a wife, for Yitzchak, he, the Torah tells us, shall show us, Eliezer is, he doesn't even realize that he's conflicted. How much do I want to daven for this to happen? And when he's telling the story to Lavan and to, and to Rivka's mother, he hears himself say, oh, Ulai Eli, maybe maybe she won't. He only hears his own bias in this place of of when he retells the story and he reexamines his behavior and says, "Wait a second, was I really acting from the best possible place?" And all of a sudden, he realizes, "Like, oh, I did have a bias in this." What besides that is very cool, like ubachema, and therefore what? What does this teach us? You know, first of all. I think that we all operate with a bias all the time. We, we just do. That is life. It would be nice if we were able to totally remove our bias all the time and just be altruistic about everything. But that just isn't really life. It doesn't really work like that. I mean, sometimes maybe we rise to the occasion, but we are able to re-examine our behavior and we are able to say, wait a second, how, how was I... How was I operating? Was I really coming from my truest sense? When we say, did I give, I tried to do something and I was, or I wasn't, let's say, because we usually think about it when we weren't successful. We tried to do something and it didn't work out. I'm like, but I tried my best. And when we look at our, our behavior, is that in fact really true? Or were we perhaps had our bias kicking in and we didn't want to, to totally succeed in a particular area because it would somehow have another effect on us that we don't even realize that sometimes we're operating with that. It's okay to say that we have bias. It's just, but it's not okay to not address it and not try to get past it. You know, it's, it's not okay to just say, well, what do you want me to do? That's my, that's where I'm coming from. That's my point of reference. And that's my, I'm protecting myself and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Yes. But sometimes wait, we need to, we need to really look at that and say, really, really? Like, did you make your best effort to be whatever? I don't know. Take it. Take a non non threatening, you know, example. Did you to make somebody feel welcome in your home? Did you really try your best, or there was something stopping us, even subconsciously, and that we we really do need to uh, pay attention to that? Now, I do want to point out that if we sit and second guess our behavior all day long, we will not move forward which is counterproductive to what we need to be doing. So I'm not saying we need to sit all the time, but one of the things that we talk about, and Chaya actually brought it up in the class, Shema, 
at night is a time for us to reflect on the day. Not all, not every single thing in every single moment, but the time that we say Shema at night, this is my own little plug, not 100% connected to Barsha, is a time for us to look at the day and say, how did I do? How do I want to do better tomorrow? And when before I go to sleep, I set my intention, not necessarily about where I want to go at night, but how do I want to start my day? Where do I want to go? How do I want to say, this I did well, this I could have done a little bit better? Because if we're going to grow, it's only going to be when we're conscious about it. Yes, yeah, sometimes like by default, we just randomly happen to do better stuff than we did before. But by and large, our go-to is, is not our highest denominator. But if we want to be growing as people, if we want to be constantly you know, in that upward motion, then when we say Shema at night and we think about our day and we say, Yala, for tomorrow, you know, I struggled with the alarm clock today, but tomorrow it's going to really, I'm going to get up with the first ring, maybe, you know, whatever it is that we want, whatever it is that we want to try to set it up for. So that's, that's, uh, that's one thing that I think was, it's just, first of all, so beautiful to see that kind of connection here in the Parsha. And then also I think for us, it's such an important thing to say like, not to just keep moving and doing and doing and doing and never examine what we're what we're saying what we're doing or what we're saying because sometimes we're doing things and we have no idea that we're we're not living our best fullest self because we're kind of sabotaging ourselves. Um, so that's that's something that I think is very important. Okay, what do we really want for time? The other thing that I want to sort of um, focus on a little bit is again, back to the beginning of the Parsha and, uh, and connected a little bit with last week. One of the things we spoke about when Avraham and Sarah went down to Mitzrayim, I, I mentioned that Hasidus talks about that Avraham represents the, the soul and Sarah represents the body. Now, with that in mind, let's look at the beginning of our Parsha and see if this makes sense, okay? talks about that Sarah had lived 100 years and 20 years and 70 years. Parenthetically, when it discusses Yishmael at the end of the Parsha, it uses that same kind of uh, choppy way of this year and this year. Okay, just stum. Period Arba. She passes away, which is Hebron. Which is By the way, this is the only time that in the, in the Chomish that uh, Hebron is called Kiryat Arba. So she passes away in Kiryat Arba, which is Hebron, the Eretz Kenan. So far, this is making sense, right? And then what do we have? Vayavo Avraham. Avraham comes lispod Sarah to eulogize Sarah ulivkota and to cry over her. Now, if we're talking about Avraham and Sarah, you know, Avraham Avinu and Sarah Imenu, like the, pe- the biblical people who lived, so then we have other questions, like how do you do a eulogy before you cry? Usually when you have bad news, sudden news, because Sarah does pass away Sarah suddenly, the, the measure tells us, um, and Rashi brings it down. Um, you, you'd be inconsolable. You're already coming to eulogize her. Okay, so so there's that's a different conversation. But I want to look at this conversation with Avraham being the soul and Sarah being the body. And what happens? The body, after 120 years, or 127 years in in Sarah's case, passes away. And what does the soul do? 
Christ. The soul comes and cries, and the soul comes and misses the body. Hello? Hello? I thought the soul was all spiritual, and the body was keeping you, you know, all this physical stuff. We had to eat, and we had to sleep, and we had to, like, do all this kind of awkward physical stuff. What are you so upset? You're free. You're sold. You're, you're released. Go soar. Be with Hashem. Isn't that what a soul wants? We talk about you know, the, the analogy of the soul as the flame, right? It's always going up. It's always going up. It's always going up. Hey, you're, not, you're not tied down. Go, go. What are you upset about? Exactly, exactly. A soul without a body cannot do mitzvahs. And what happens when the soul has lived, has been bodied for as many years as it has been bodied, realizes, oh, this body, which I, when I came, when the soul came into the body, it was torture. It was so hard. It was like, look at this body. I want to go learn Torah and this body wants to sleep or eat ice cream. Like, really? Right? And one of the things that Baal Shem teaches us in in uh, I remember where it talks about where you see your 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 enemy's donkey falling under its load, and you should surely help it. So the Balshem says, "Yes, does that sound familiar? Anybody know such a such a verse? If you see an animal struggling, and the example that the that the that the Chomish gives is chamor, a donkey, it could be any animal, because uh, the principle is the same. You see somebody's animal struggling." they're under a very heavy load and you can't hide your eyes you have to actually help the person uh whether it's reload the animal or take something off you can't there's there's prohibitions against you know cruelty to animals so you see an animal struggling that's a, that's what the mitzvah is in the you see an animal struggling you have to help the person with the animal right so the Baal says the chamor is also humriyut, it's physicality you see the soul you see that it's the physicality is is drowning it. It is drowning under physicality. It is drowning under this body with all its demands and all of its needs. The soul has no need for any of this stuff. It doesn't need shelter and clothing and sleep and pesky things like, like whatever. It just wants to serve Hashem. So when the soul and the body are first joined, it's painful. The soul doesn't know how to deal with this because the body just keeps slowing it down and stopping it and you know, not wanting to go where I want to go. It's like, but when the soul learns to work with the body, here's a chamor. It's, it's, it's so physical. It's so, so, so physical. But when the soul says, how can we pick this up? How can we elevate this person? How can we teach the body to eat kosher, to eat with a bracha, to eat in moderation, to use the energy for a mitzvah. That's the soul getting the body into soul work, meaning using the body, definitely using the body, but doing soul work through the body. And as Mika pointed out so beautifully, a soul can't do mitzvahs. A soul must have a body in order to do mitzvahs, but it does take time for the body and the soul to learn to work together. And to such a degree, that by the time this separation happens, that the body and the soul are again going to be separated, the soul is like, 
no, no, no. We aren't done yet. We haven't finished what we wanted to do. We haven't, we have so much more planned and we have, you know, there were all these mitzvahs and all these good deeds that we wanted to do. And one of the things that we see specifically about mitzvahs, every single mitzvah has a physical, not just a manifestation, but a physical amount, how much, to what degree, everything, even a mitzvah, which is like more intellectual, like learning Torah or, or you know, stuck, we know it's very, how much money you're supposed to get, but every single mitzvah has physical limitations um, bordering it. And first the soul is like, what is up with this? And then all of a sudden we're like, that's, that's how we change the world, the body and the soul together. So what happens is that we take Sarah, the soul, that is Kiryat Arba, it's made up of four different elements, which is in Hebron, which is like a chaver, a friend. They're all combined together. The elements are all combined together. It lives in the Eretz Kenan. Kenan is come from the root word, which I forgot which one it is, of, of commerce. That the, 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 it's in a place in this world. That's when the body and the soul can't do any kind of commerce together. Um, they can do mitzvahs and they can change the world and they can influence the world. And when that time is over, when that separation, when the elements and the chibor of the body and soul are untied, then the soul comes and says, wow, chaval. So I want to give us all a bracha. So much is happening this week. We also talked about that this is Rosh Chodesh. We're, sorry, it's not Rosh Chodesh. We're blessing the month of Kislev. So we're still in the month of Cheshvan. We're still in the month of like dreary. It hasn't been as rainy as we would like Cheshvan to be in Israel, but uh, we still have time for that to happen. But it's a kind of a low-key kind of month. And we're now blessing the month of Kislev, which is a, lot, a month that is full, full, full of light. Both Hanukkah, lots of Hasidic holidays going on in Kislev. So we're starting to bring that light and fire. We know it's both light and warmth, the source of light and a source of warmth into the month of Cheshvan. So I want to give us a bracha as we start to combine and bring our light in a way that super shines and super warms that we should understand that our body and our whole life, like, first of all, it's not at odds. We're supposed to be grounded in a body. We need to be, I want somebody to use the expression once to be bodied, you know, the soul is bodied. Um, it's like such a, such a, it always stuck in my head that we should understand that we need to use this connection to the fullest extent to be able to bring light and to bring warmth um, to the people around us. And whether it's where we're now in, you know, going into winter and it's going to be cold and we're going, we're going to, we're going to really want to huddle down and stop doing things, but to really be able to take that spark, pull it up, shine it forward and move it to the people around us. So that in a place, as the Rebbe told the Shliach, this week is also the conference of the Shluchim in America. There was a Shliach who came to the Rebbe once and he said to him, the Shluchim, the men, the Shluchim is, is later, Shrat, it's in a couple of months. This week is the men. This, this week is going to be the men is the men's conference. And there's a shliach. I think he, I think it was right in, in Nashville. And he came to me and he said, Siskalt and Finster. Sorry, you want to finish? Siskalt and Finster. It's cold and it's dark. And the Rebbe said, Dein Arbit is zu machen warm und lichtig. Your job is to make it warm and lit up. And really, that is what we're going to do. Our body and our soul together working optimally with this energy of Kislev coming in. Our job is to make it warm and light for everybody around us have an awesome rest of the day whoever's going to heaven please 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 send my best regards to the mamas and the papas um and yeah have a great shabbos